0: Welcome to the bounce. I am Bob Lapine. I am a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas, Redeemer Community Church, and on the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective. GCC is the organization that brings you the bounce, and you can find out more about our collective by going to our website, which is gccollective.org. gccollective.org Great Commission Collective is all about planting churches and strengthening leaders. And we're a worldwide movement, planting gospel-centered churches all around the world. So again, find out more by going to gccollective.org. I haven't seen the most recent statistics on this, but all of us know that there are men who are stepping out of pastoral ministry every week. Men who are throwing in the towel and saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't sustain this life. I know many in our congregation look at us as pastors and say, well, what do you do the other six days of the week? It looks like you only work a half a day a week. Little do they know the burden that pastors carry. Somebody who does know that and understand it well is Garrett Higby. Garrett was trained as a clinical psychologist. He had a radical conversion to Christ back in 1992 which brought him into biblical counseling. And for more than 30 years, that has been his focus and his orientation. He is the director of 12 Stones North in Indianapolis. He hosts lead healthy retreats for pastors and ministry leaders and their spouses. In fact, there's information about those retreats in our show notes. He is the leader care specialist for the Great Commission Collective and is president of Soul Care Consulting. He has done a lot for all of us who are a part of GCC. We're grateful for Garrett. And we got a chance to spend some time with him recently to talk about how we take care of our own souls as pastors. Garrett, great to have you here. Let's start by having you share with listeners Why the burden, how the burden of spiritual care for people and for pastors in particular, how did you begin to sense that was what God was calling you to?
1: Yeah, thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. I would say that goes back a ways. I've been, you know, in counseling for a long, long time. But uh, when I got saved in the early 90s, I kind of dove right into ministry work. And I realized pastors were people, too. (laughs) that leaders in the the church were not impervious to their own doubts and struggles and all that. And it, it kind of almost surprised me. I was a little naive. I think I thought you go to the church, it's going to be the healthiest place on earth and everybody's going to be thriving and, it's just there's really no politics because cause we're all in the
0: gospel and I'm just well like, and, and pastors in particular we're the men of God we should be the spiritual Samson well I, I was going to say Samson but that's probably the wrong metaphor to pick right I, well I mean in some ways that's
1: not a bad metaphor because I think we're strong we think we're stronger than we are and then we are right. Uh, caught up in some kind of blind spots or weaknesses. But at the same time, I was really impressed with the calling and the sincerity of a lot of the men and women in full time ministry. So it wasn't that I was disappointed in their you near know, calling or even in their zeal, it was just the lifestyle. Was overwhelming, and I don't. And one thing I hadn't thought about as much was spiritual warfare. So mm. all that stuff was new to me, and I had to understand the challenges of caring for people. But now I was trying to understand how to help people who are caregivers as well as just caring for
0: the people in the congregation. As a caregiver, did you experience your own sense of spiritual depletion and and just being? exhausted and needing to to physician heal thyself in these areas that you were helping pastors with? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say, even though 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is true,
1: that there is no temptation, you know, that is not common to man. I think there is a elevated temptation for caregivers, pastors, leaders in ministry, and and more enduring kinds of conflicts and trials and heavy things that enter into our life on a weekly basis. And so that took its toll on me over time, and I began to realize that I had to take more time of retreat or rest or abiding than I had ever had to before to sustain health in ministry and in my marriage. And I was neglecting that, so I hit a couple walls where Tammy and I actually had to one time go for counseling another time i had to actually say i need to take a time out here i'm not in a good position to be counseling anybody right now and Mm -hmm. so those were humbling moments but also really good moments for us to see our limits and then get some help
0: or get some rest to be able to keep going you talk about it being humbling moments and i'm thinking of pastors who are listening who are going you know I'm out here on the ragged edge, but I think I can hold it together. I'm, it's probably manageable. Or maybe they're, they're experiencing crisis, but they're going, if anybody knew, if, if I let somebody in on this, I'm afraid my whole world would collapse or people wouldn't listen to my sermons anymore or whatever. I'm wondering about your own process from thinking, we may need to get some help, but I don't want to do that to the point where you came and said, we have to do this.
1: When you start to prioritize the things you know you're supposed to steward and love the most, like your relationship with Christ and your marriage. You just put aside some of those fears. It's not that they're not there. Trust me. I wonder if I was going to have, you know, any credibility when I went to a biblical counselor who's nationally known and go, "Uh, I'm really needing counseling. And, he, and I, he knew I was already a counselor, he knew I was a leader of my church, but he, he was so glad I came and so, so helpful. He goes, Garrett, this actually isn't gonna hurt your ministry, it's gonna enhance it. And I remembered that and I've told that about every guy that's come to me, that's entrusted his or her ministry to, to me that, hey, look, what a bold move you just made. I'm so thankful you're here. This is, this is not going anywhere. This is not me testing your qualifications. And if anybody thinks I'm on that errand, they're wrong. Now that's some, that might be your elders thing. That might be somebody else's agenda. That is not mine. My, I am here to serve you, to help you, to, to, to encourage you. And if some conviction comes from that great, but that's, that's between you and the Lord, we need to be really careful to create safe places for pastors and wives and ministry leaders and wives to go where they know they're not going to be outed uh, by us. At the same time, they may even self-select out of ministry sometimes. I've had that happen after an intervention. But that wasn't because I was there to
0: condemn or judge anything they were going through. As you interact with pastors, and that's your primary interaction these days, right? More with pastors than with laymen and women in a local church. So you have an opportunity in that regard to see what are the most taxing, the most common issues that are manifesting themselves in ministry today, the, the, the areas of spiritual attack. Is there a list, is there a top three that are the, the ones you'd point to?
1: Yeah, and I think you see some of this if you read. I know you probably have familiarity with some of Paul Tripp's writing, Dangerous Calling or Lead or other uh, materials. And I, and I found this to be true. Fear of man is a huge issue because you, it's like everybody thinks they have access to you and everybody has an opinion, especially in today's culture. And so you're being pulled by different polar opposite opinions all the time. And who can you please? And you realize you really can't please man, but it, it ultimately can tear a pastor or a pastor's life apart if you get caught up in that. Loneliness, I would say, is another one. Many, many allies, but few confidants, few close friends. And then I would say, ongoing conflict in the church. Either it's it's between church members, uh, it's between the elders and the staff, or you know, uh, you and one particular elder or staff person. That is exhausting, and and obviously, like you said, it even makes you fear for your, job at times. I would say those are very very common
0: issues coming into the counseling group. And let's go through those and just unpack them a little bit. So fear of man, I mean we're we're in a as pastors, we're in a serving helping profession. Assignment is to help people grow spiritually, to disciple people, and it's easy to see how we want to know if if we're connecting well with people, if we're engaging well with people that can make us at least alert to, are we being effective? How does fear of man get out of balance? How does it become a a dominating issue for a pastor and begin to shut him down?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, because one of the the resilience factors I talk about is having a a growing EQ, so a growing emotional intelligence, so your ability to understand how you're doing and how you're affecting the people around you. So you don't want to dull your sensitivity to how you're you know, ministering to people or like somehow become jaded. Um, but at the same time, you do want to say, I have to be very focused on what is true. What is the most loving thing to do? and how does it line up with scripture i'm asking myself those questions all the time like what what is really true here not how do i feel how does that person feel the other question is you know what does love look like here love may look like saying no love may say i you know this this is not the right time and then there's the whole issue of wisdom the timing of by which you you do minister in what is the highest priority and pleasing God clearly is is going to be the top priority so if I'm pleasing God you know and pleasing man great you know if it, if what what they need lines up with scripture or what they need I can you know give that's wonderful uh, but there's times when pleasing God puts you at odds with you know, that person and you need to say, well, in this case, I need to uh, say no or wait or get more wisdom. Because if I just give in to the fear of what they think of me or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, fear of failure, fear of not looking competent, then I'm going to react and not
0: respond biblically. I love what you, you said about recognizing what real love is, because I know it's taken me a while to understand that sometimes what we think is love is really enabling dysfunction in other people. We're giving in, we're pleasing them, but we're not really loving them. And there's a difference, isn't there?
1: There really is. I mean, you know, that kind of saying when helping actually hurts, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, when you think you're doing the right thing because you have high empathy, but you're not being, you've sacrificed truth for grace, which by the way, love never sacrifices truth, but it never sacrifices grace. It lives in the tension of both. It takes an abiding relationship with Christ to know the difference. If you are close to God, if you're not filled with the spirit, you're probably gonna end up playing the compensation game. Like, oh, a little, little too much truth better be more grace next time. Oh, a little too enabling, I better be tougher next time. I've done that with my kids. I don't know about you, but like I, I've noticed that's one place where I fall in those ditches. And I'm like, Garrett, what are you doing? You know, you're not living in attention. You're you're trying to compensate all the time. And it's not a great place to be with people.
0: Let's talk about loneliness for a second because you identified that as a factor. And it is hard to know as a pastor who can we be completely honest with and vulnerable with? Can we do that with our elders? There, there's some hesitation there because they're the ones who might decide we're not qualified for ministry anymore if we tell them the truth about what's going on in our own soul. How do we cultivate healthy relationships where we can have that kind of honesty with others?
1: Yeah, yeah that that is very true. It's hard to find peers that love you for just who you are and not see you in the position of pastor, pastor's wife, whatever ministry leadership you, you have. They're looking to, I was talking to a guy yesterday and he goes, I did not expect to be as lonely as I am as a pastor. And he goes, I really actually have pretty good community and relationship with my elders. But there's this point where you start talking about a struggle or a weakness and you get nervous like are they going to judge me am i losing credibility is this even potentially you know going to challenge my my authority or my role in the in the elder room and so i like oh man i i've heard that a hundred times and so one of the things I, I maybe this is kind of idealistic bob but like then you you would know from your experience I would think ideally, we build a trust culture in our plurality, that we work through what it means to be debilitated, but not disqualified. And I would really, I try to teach those categories to leaders all the time. Look, you can be a bit debilitated or struggling, but not disqualified. And do your elders have a category for that? And what do they do when that is the case? Because that is the case where you come alongside, you care, you help, you seek good counsel, you coach, whatever you need to do, you don't just put them out. But I think because we put such a premium on the pastor being kind of above reproach and holy and, and so healthy, and it's just unrealistic, honestly, in ministry to hold people to that standard, it's a good thing to shoot for, but it's not a realistic thing to expect. And and so what we need to do is teach our pluralities, which we go around doing that right now in these healthy plurality trainings, that it's okay to struggle together. As a matter of fact, you should be able to have a safe place to bring up any kind of issues. If it's disqualifying, which is extremely rare, by the way, but if it's disqualifying, then you deal with that. But most of the time, it's not. Most, uh, most of the time, it's just a struggle that you need to work through. But trust is at such a premium. And most elders haven't been taught how to come alongside their pastor and, and, and to be a, more like a friend to their pastor than just somebody who wants to be around them
0: because they're, you know, who they are or the position they hold. And let me get very specific here, because I'm thinking of the pastors I've talked to, and the men i know who would say okay i clicked on something i shouldn't have clicked on yep i looked at something i shouldn't have looked at i can't tell my elders that i had that experience because they're going to be guys who are saying well then you need to step down for not for a year maybe permanently i mean is 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 that one of these non disqualifying but debilitating issues you're talking about i think you nailed one of the ones that are
1: maybe is most prominent most is common, that somebody yeah. Yeah. Somebody stumbled into something or looked at something mortified that they looked as long as they did, or they, 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 they lingered or whatever, and they feel convicted. That's good. I mean, not the sin, but the conviction. And so then it's like, who else would you tell, but the people who really should be holding you accountable in a healthy way. And yes, you need to Figure out if is there any what brought that on. Is there you know a lack of pursuit of Christ in a way that needs to be attended to, or is there a carelessness in some of your disciplines or or accountability or whatever, whatever it is, it's something you can work on. It. But if if that's disqualifying, if if stumbling into sin or and then being convicted is disqualifying, there aren't many pastors that should be in the pulpit next week because that is happening at a alarming rate. But I think the reason that it's not being addressed is because of what we're talking about. Like, it it, it could become disqualifying. Where do we
0: cross the line between a pastor who has stumbled, is stumbling, and one who is disqualified in that area? And and I'm just using that because it's, I know, so dominant in the culture. There could be any number of issues. But take that, for example, how do you know the difference between a, a debilitation and a disqualification.
1: Yeah, I I do think that pastors and elders are are called to a higher level of character and a and a and a higher set of qualifications. So I don't take any of that lightly and nor should any of us, but at the same time I I think a lot of scripture would come to bear here like if you look at Matthew eighteen, and you, you know, like, if you win your brother, bring this up, and they truly are convicted and repentant, in other words, ready to turn and and very concerned and humbly bringing that to you, I think that that is in the debilitated or struggling category. When it's disqualifying is when the when they're caught not confessing, and their immediate reaction is to underplay it minimize it, make excuses, uh, and potentially look like they have worldly sorrow, but no godly sorrow. So in other words, some regret for being caught, some regret for the embarrassment of it all, Uh, maybe some regret because their wife is devastated, but they're not true. You don't just see this brokenness, this, I need help. Oh my gosh, guys, I am so sorry. You know, I'm sorry for the church. I'm sorry for what this has done to you. I'm sorry for what this is done. Like there's just a, an earnestness to the repentance that I think keeps you qualified to continue. When that is no longer there,
0: that to me is disqualified. And I'm thinking of the guys who are listening who would say, I have stumbled here. I I feel terrible. I am under the weight of conviction. I've taken this to the Lord and I wish I could take it to my elders, and I wish I could get their support and their prayers and the accountability. But if I brought this up, I'm afraid I'd be out of work next week. What does that guy do?
1: Well, you've got a bigger problem here. You've got a problem with the fact you haven't taught your elders well. Your church then is a church that's not safe, ultimately. If you now, I understand I'm being a little global here, maybe a little unspecific in a sense of like, oh, easy for you to say, Garrett, but like we deal with this all the time with with leaders. Well, what I'd say to you is then pick a guy that is the least judgmental elder in your elder team and say, dude, I'm going to take a risk. I got to tell you something. and I And I need you to to hear me out and pray with me and i mean if you feel from what we talk about that you got to talk to other guys that's between you and the lord but i hope you don't i hope we can work through this and then i want to talk about why i I only could tell you you know so that would be one way that you could go about it another would be to go to another pastor you trust maybe in another church and 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 go through it with them and then say hey would you help me figure out how to get to a place where I could talk to somebody in my church about this. Like what happened that I can talk to you and you and I both have determined as kind of co-ministers of the gospel that I am not disqualified, but if I went to my elders, I might be disqualified. What, what's going on there? Is there any way I can turn that around? So I, I do think there's a bigger problem here and that is we have to equip and train pluralities and our staff on these categories and help them to find a safe way to confess and, and seek loving accountability so that it doesn't lead to disqualification.
0: One of the reasons I love being a part of GCC is because we have that kind of cross-pollinization. I have guys I know I can call, guys I'm on prayer calls with, guys where I I, I know there's that that trust relationship, and when we need help. uh, Maybe it's with a plurality that needs some coaching or training. It's not all on us to do it, but we can get some outside help from GCC. So I I just think that's one of the healthy things about being a part of uh, something like the Great Commission Collective. I want us to spend a little time talking about how we protect ourselves as pastors from some of these issues that we're facing. How do we build spiritual strength? How do we build emotional resilience so that we can be the effective pastors we need to be? And I know one of the ways you work with pastors on is we have to be caring for our own soul and our own spiritual development. That has to be a a regular part of our lives and you would think, well, we're pastors. Of course, we know that. We tell everybody else to do that. But it's easy for us to get caught up in the work of ministry and ignore the need for ministering to our own soul.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right, Bob. I, I kind of been working up five essential habits of a, of a healthy pastor and, and, and pastoral family. And the first scripture that comes to mind is First Timothy four sixteen that talks about watching your life and doctrine. Closely, And what I think a lot of our guys are known for is they're really good exegetical, biblically sound preachers. And I love that. And I want that. And and I think it's kind of, uh, I want that to be one of the things we're known for. But like, wouldn't it be cool if we're also known for our life is so congruent with what we preach that, you know, we're closing the integrity gap all the time. We're always aware of the gap, always aware of the gap. You know, it's kind of reminds me when I was in, you know, in England and here, you know, mind the gap, mind the gap. So I tell guys, mind the gap. If there, if there is a difference between your spoken theology and your lived theology, close the gap. That's ongoing spiritual development, abiding in the word for your own soul, not just for your congregation, being true to your first love and finding a way that that the word still moves you or you go to the pulpit. It still does something in your soul first, so that when you go to the pulpit, it's, it's coming from how it's affected your soul, your heart. So one of the things I'm talking to guys about all the time is, man, do you have, not just are you in the word, but do you have a vital abiding connection and intimacy with
0: Christ? If not, let's talk about that and let's figure out how to get that back. True confession time here. I've heard pastors for years say, you're doing your exegetical work to prepare for your sermon. Don't think of that as being in the word. You need to be in the word for your own soul apart from your sermon prep. So my own practice and experience has been that my time in the word for doing sermon prep is so personally challenging to me that if i'm off doing something else in another part of scripture it's almost like i'm at war with myself in terms of what the spirit's trying to do through the word as we're talking i'm getting ready to preach on pride this sunday we've been going through the seven deadly sins and so i'm i'm amassing <laughs> right i'm i'm getting all of this stuff together on pride and and my quotes and my texts and i mean if if you're doing this in a, a real pastoral sense, it has to beat you up first. If it doesn't beat you up first, I'm a little worried about what your sermon's going to be. And if I'm over here laboring here, and, I say, and then I go, well, I have to have my personal time in the Word somewhere else where I'm asking God to speak to me through that. I don't know how to do that. So my sermon prep time really functions for me as times of personal spiritual development. And I get up and tell people on Sunday all the time, if if this message steps on your toes, just knows it know it has stepped all over my feet all week long before it ever got to you,
1: yeah, no, I think you don't have to go to a different place in scripture, Bob, as you know, if you're approaching it the way you're approaching it, I think first personal gonna have its effect on me, and especially like, oh my gosh, if I'm studying pride, I am just get <laughs> I am just. Getting going back to the woodshed because I'm getting got, pumbled, it's not yeah. it's like it's not upright it's like where is it you know where is it showing up so that so that's that and so then there's a humility piece that comes that I think is so important then I think it's. So it goes from personal to private. In other words, I have to tell somebody about this. Like, I got to go talk to my wife. I got to go humble myself to one of my kids, to one of my friends. And so then it kind of goes. So now I know it's really affecting me because I got marching orders before I even went to the pulpit, you know. And then it goes public. Public, I don't feel like as much of a hypocrite. I might still feel a little bit like one just because I'm like, who am I to teach on pride? But at the same time, I'm doing it from an authentic place of having applied it in my own life. So I think, I think you're good there, Bob. I think you nailed it in terms of, you know, like, I, I, do I have to really go have some other like
0: place? No, I mean, as long as the scripture is exegeting you. When you're exegeting it, you're good. Well, when my wife starts asking me the accountability questions at the end of my sermon, that's where I go. <laughs> yeah, I, I meant this for other people, honey, not not for
1: me. <laughs> uh, yeah, be, be, babe, babe, like lay off. I'm, I'm already getting
0: beat up enough. So ongoing personal spiritual development. That's one category. What's the second category?
1: I would say, do you, you kind of nailed it. This, this, what I would, what the world calls self care. And I would say caring for your own soul because it's not just me time here. This is you in Christ's time. It's you and your marriage, it's you and your kids, it's you. It's really life giving rhythms. The second one really is life giving rhythms that care for your own soul. So it could be relationally, it could be emotional, could be intellectual, just like something you're reading. It could be physical things you're doing to just rest or eat well or exercise, but things that you're doing that are stewarding your soul, your body for the work of ministry so you'll be sustainable for the future. It's not selfish. It's honestly good stewardship
0: i'm getting ready to take a sabbatical and it's easy in that sabbatical time to be thinking that this is for me but i've realized i'm taking a sabbatical for my congregation it will refresh and replenish me but i if if i do this right i will come back from my sabbatical a better more effective servant it's with my congregation in mind. I'm not trying to downplay the fact that I'm looking forward to the rest and will enjoy it. Right. But it, but I'm trying to think about this. It's not just me time. This is, if I'm going to be an effective servant of the Lord, by God's design, I need seasons of rest in order to be effective.
1: By God's design, you nailed it. He calls us to just walk to a different place, to get closer to him, to to step away from ministry as Jesus did uh, and withdrew from vital ministry at times to just be with the father or to be with the disciples. And when there were hundreds of people that wanted to talk to him. And so I think that is a good pattern. I think that you need to sharpen the, the saw, so to speak, and to sharpen the saw, you have to stop the work mm-hmm. and you're going to do better work, more efficient work, more God, hopefully God focused work, because you're going to have a sharper, cleaner clearer sense of what you're supposed to do next, because you met with the, you know, the Lord, you met with family, met with trusted advisors during this break. And it's just going to, it's going to fill your, your engine or your, you know, gas tank again. And it's, it's just a high return on investment because it's not just about you. It's about the, the, the work that God has called you to. So I, I agree with that. So that's number two. Number three is really number two, after you've sort of put the oxygen mask on yourself, you attend to your family. And so marriage and family stewardship is next. So intentional investment in your marriage, being present in the moment you are home, partnering with your spouse, not just pulling them along in ministry, just to give you some examples being many, many more. But this idea of of being intentional in your marriage and family life, it's it's a design again in, in Genesis two. It's a practice in Colossians three. It's a qualification in First Peter three. I mean First Timothy three. So, so clearly, it's a big deal to God that we make our ministry focus not just on the church but on our own home.
0: I remember Josh McDowell one time, a author, apologist, well known. We were in an interview and and he made this shocking statement. He said, "My." Ministry is more important than my marriage. And, you know, it was it was startling because you didn't expect him to say it. It's not what you expect. And then he stopped and he said, And my number one ministry is to my wife. And it was it was that he got my attention when he said what I didn't expect him to say. (laughs) And and then he corrected it and said, "I, I have to recognize my number one ministry is at home. And I've told men for years, if you're not caring for your marriage and your family, you're, you will lose your platform for any other kind of ministry. That is a qualification. And so if we want to be the men of God, God's called us to be and be effective in pastoral ministry, caring for our marriage is a requirement in order for that to happen. We have to see it that way and uh, take care of it.
1: I I agree. I think there's been some kind of weird, false dichotomy somehow between marriage and ministry, like somehow they're in competition or something. Josh McDowell said it well, it's like my ministry doesn't stop when I go home. It actually, you know, I go home to go to work. You know, I go home to, 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 to minister first and foremost. And if I'm bringing my leftovers, into the home because, hey, babe, I had a rough day at the church. You wouldn't believe it. And she's like, can I talk to you about my rough day? Well, gosh, babe, can you just, you know, can you just realize how hard my job is? I mean, you, you just, all oh, you got to just take care of the kids and the house. Like, are you kidding me? So, like, uh, yeah, try that on if you really want to cause conflict in your marriage. But also, it's just not good. It's not true to who God says we're to be. And, and I think he calls us to himself first, to our marriage second as a husband, uh, to our kids third as a father. Then probably ministry is right behind that for most of us. And somehow they need to overlap, need, which is that partnership Tammy and I have learned probably the hard way because I used to protect her from all the crazy at the church, but to the point where she felt like, she didn't have any idea what I was going through or how to be my partner. And now I've entrusted to her some hard things. And she, But here's the trick for us. We go on prayer walks almost every day. And when she can take my burdens vertically, she doesn't have to carry them the same way. So it's really beautiful what has happened over the last 10 years because we've really become partners in ministry.
0: So be growing spiritually care for your own soul, take care of your marriage and your family, make that a priority. These are foundational issues if we're going to be effective in ministry. And then what's next? I would say this one is one that a
1: lot of guys like think about a lot. And that is kind of a growing self-awareness and how you are affecting the people around you. So some people call that EQ or emotional intelligence. So, Imagine if you had a pretty good idea how you're doing. By the way, this is not some kind of morbid self-reflection. This is a biblically guided sense of where you stand, like a Psalm 139. God kind of, hey, shine the light on me. Show me what's going on in my soul. Show me what, if there's anything, you know, that I'm doing or saying or, Anything I'm treasuring above you, then make that apparent to me, help me to repent. How not only is my soul doing, but how are my moods, my leadership style, my heart bent, how's that impacting the people around me? And so I have to seek feedback. I literally, to be self-aware, I one need to go to the Lord first to make sure I'm getting a biblically examined soul. And then secondly, Get some feedback from some other people because you might be surprised at some, the blind spot or something, some way you're treating people that is not ideally helping your church or your family culture. And so just being self-aware, growing in, in that self-awareness
0: biblically and through Trusted feedback is so helpful. And something that I've benefited from, studying the whole idea of emotional intelligence and growing in that area and learning, cultivating empathy and yeah, yeah, very helpful there. And so, okay, we tie it all together then with what? Leading
1: other people in that health. So in other words, now that I'm getting healthier, I can't keep it to myself. You know, to your point, pride can get in the way of this, but leading out of humility, Not just to uh, impress people, but to empower them to lead well. So, leader development is really this last category, but leading in a way that is spirit led, prayer saturated, biblically informed, so that you're listening until you really understand. So, you're empowering others and equipping others to do the work of ministry so you don't burn out, so that you are doing what is excellent, not just what is good because you've prayed with your elders and you've fought through the possibilities. You're making disciples, but you're making healthy disciples because you're making healthy disciple makers. That's
0: the last thing. You know, we've talked at our church for years among our plurality, among our elders. And this came to me early on. We We were working on bylaws for the church and trying to decide what's the right rhythm for elder meetings and how do you... Just, you know, putting together the structure of the church... And we were having conversations and debates, and I, I paused it at one point, and I said, you know, we may get the bylaws wrong and have to come back and fix them. And I said, and if we do, that's not going to be disastrous for the church. What we can't get wrong is cultivating a culture of humility, accountability, and teachability. And we mm-hmm. use the HAT, H. it's a good acronym. Yeah, it is. So we put on our hats, humility, accountability, and teachability. I said If we get the bylaws wrong, but get humility, accountability, and teachability right, we're going to be okay. If we get humility, accountability, and teachability wrong, and the bylaws are picture perfect, it's not going to go well for us. We've seen, Garrett, you know this, Christian leaders more and more who are flaming out in ministry and who are taking churches down with them because of a lack of humility and a lack of accountability. And a lack of teachability—we've got to be on guard against this. It's almost epidemic in our era. And and I think as men, we can look at these strong men who are strong leaders and and want to emulate that. If you're not seeing humility and accountability and teachability, you need to be on guard against that person because there's a there's a dangerous route there.
1: It's so true. I you know it has the biggest plague I would say in the church is is that it isn't, you know, the politics going on around us. It's not the fact that our culture is kind of going to seed at this point. That's very concerning. But the biggest issue is inside the church, and it's honestly inside each of us. If we don't humble ourselves, if we don't see that we're living under grace and it costs a precious price for us to live under this grace. And if we don't look at Philippians 2 and just think, oh, Lord, help me, you know, to be that kind of man because of, yes, because you've given me love and encouragement and all these things, I will put others before myself and I will empty myself daily because you emptied yourself to the point where you do not even consider equality something to grasp with the Lord. you went to the cross and died for our sins with, with no regard, you condescended to, to this level with no regard for yourself. And if I can't embrace that on a regular basis, you know, I always say, Bob, there's two schools that you're going to go through in, in life as, as a, as a, as a leader, particularly one is the school of humiliation. When you do, realize that you are doing it for yourself or you were you were getting full of yourself or your echo chamber of self was too great or you're bringing yes men around you or whatever that's humiliating. When you finally get caught, you either get disqualified or you get super humbled. Uh, But the second school is the school of humility. And if you go there daily, you won't need to be humiliated uh, because you will quickly see at the foot of the cross that you bring nothing to the table that God doesn't equip you and empower you to do. And that there'll be no good fruit. There'll be no, nothing of any eternal significance done through you without you abiding and humbling yourself daily. Let God lift you up. So I I agree with you that that hat is really good. I I am going to remember that because I think that if we do that as men, um, and I know the guys in the GCC are about that because they've seen the other way and they want to be those kind of men and women, um, we're going to be able to, you know, help in a in a season when uh, the church is desperately needed to be a light in a,
0: in a pretty dark time. Yeah, this is on my heart a lot because I've been studying about pride this week, but Proverbs says the proud man is an abomination. Let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. And then Peter tells us God opposes the proud. And so it's not just a fact, it's not just God saying, I can't use you, I will oppose you. Who wants to be in that position? And somebody has said, I I don't remember who, somebody said, You don't hate anything as much as God hates pride. Mm. Wow. And so I've been sobered by that and just recognizing gotta stay humble. You gotta recognize that make your boast only in the Lord, right? I would kiddingly
1: say this to guys, Don't don't, out, don't outrun your punt coverage. In other words, like when you think that you can run out ahead of your elders or run out ahead of what your wife's telling you or what the Lord is convicting you of, if you think you're all that, you are about to get tackled hard. And so I'm trying to help guys stay behind the line. Let the Lord go in front of you, question yourself regularly and just really put your heart before the Lord daily. Uh, And you will, you know, he'll take care of you and he'll exalt you in due time. You might just need to stay low or wait because God's not wanting to exalt you right now. And that's okay.
0: I'm grateful to Garrett Higby for taking time out with us today here on The Bounce to talk about soul care. And let me again mention that Garrett leads retreats for pastors and ministry leaders called Lead Healthy Retreats. You can find out about those at the website, leadhealthyretreats.com, or there's a link in our show notes. You can also find out more about the Great Commission Collective. Let me just say, to be a part of a collective where we can bear one another's burdens as pastors has been healthy and helpful for me. I'm grateful for GCC, for the Great Commission Collective, happy to be a part of it, and would encourage you to share information about GCC with others, or to find out more about it for yourself and for your church. Again, go to our website, gccollective.org.